You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. There's a really interesting Christian tradition that begins as far back as really the completion of the New Testament canon. And that tradition, or game if you will, although most of the time it doesn't feel like a game, is something that we could probably just call spot the Antichrist. Because as long as there have been Christians, we've been looking for someone to hang that title on. This title that comes out of some of the language in the New Testament that we see pop up, but especially out of John's book of Revelation where we see this unbelievably horrific picture of this beast crawling up and devouring the church. And so Christians, especially with that kind of speculative language, that symbolic language, have been always looking for who is that? And In this book that I've referenced before, that I love, it's one of those random books that you just find and it just speaks so much life into you over the course of time. It's called A Pocket Guide to the Apocalypse. And it's a little brief history of just apocalyptic thought and fear and how that's woven itself not just into church culture, but into culture as a whole. And there's an entire chapter on knowing your potential antichrist, just in case you were wondering. There's an entire list of certain requirements that may go along with the kind of speculation that one would normally see with trying to identify this person. The first candidate outlined here in the history of Antichrist suspicion is the one that I think, if it is in fact a real historical person, the one that probably John was trying to identify here in the emperor Nero. The first fear in Christian history and church history about the identity of this beast of revelation, this antichrist figure with the persecution of the church, is most probably rightly pinned on at least the historical person of Nero. But it certainly doesn't stop there. The second entry here is the Pope, any Pope. And throughout history, we've seen that happen in the life of the church. People coming up saying, no, it must be the Pope. We see people like Martin Luther and John Calvin identifying the Pope of their particular time or even the office of the papacy as this kind of antichrist figure. We can keep going, and then you see some pretty substantial world leaders, especially those that are capable of horrific atrocities. And so in the early part of the 20th century, you see people saying, well, surely it must be Adolf Hitler. Hitler has all the characters of somebody that we would see as an antichrist figure because look at all of these horrific and awful things that he's done. And then about halfway through the 20th century, we see this thing in American culture start to pop up where all of a sudden people on one side of the political aisle or the other begin to identify whatever candidate or president may be in office that disagrees with them. And that starts especially during the tenure of John F. Kennedy. But it comes again up in Ronald Reagan. And I would say that I think now that this is kind of my era in which I have lived, almost every president, I would say maybe with the exception of Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush, have probably had somebody calling them the Antichrist. I remember hearing that for the first time as a child during George W. Bush's presidency. It came up again in Obama's presidency. It came up again in Trump's presidency. You hear it now during Biden's presidency. But you also hear that outside of our political realm, looking at other political leaders all over the world, trying to hang that on people that cause us great fear or difficulty or stress. 
but also even in the era of technology. You see this title hung on people like maybe Bill Gates or Elon Musk because we look at those things, these people with great power, wealth, and the ability to cause great change in our world and think, oh no, maybe this is the person. And why has that become such a thing? If in reality, when we look at the context of the book of Revelation, if John is either specifically writing about this figure of Nero, who is the embodiment of persecution against the church, or more likely writing about through the lens and the imagery of Nero, helping us understand that there is this presence and spirit of the Antichrist waging war against the church at all times, why then are we constantly looking for someone to wear this moniker? Why are we looking for someone to wear this title? And I think it's because living under bad authority or even just authority that we perceive to be bad authority can feel like the end of the world. Whether it's just someone who you think is going to make a major change in culture and society in a way that you don't like or you don't feel comfortable with, or people that have caused historical level atrocities in the world, when we see that kind of authority take place, we think surely this is not something that's okay in God's world and in God's design. And so this must be a person who is coming in to usher in the end of the world. Because it feels like, or at least it can feel like, the world is ending. But here's the thing. Sinful people often make for harsh or at least flawed rulers. And sinful is kind of the only way that people come. And so it stands to reason that no matter who is in a position of great authority or power, no matter how well-meaning or not they may be, chances are we are going to find ourselves living under some type of authority, administration, or power that we are uncomfortable with or find great difficulty in following. So what is a Christian to do? How is a follower of God supposed to live in a world where we are going to be subject to ungodly and unjust authority on a regular basis? Well, I think we see some of that beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to be rooted in this passage, but we're not going to live here through the entirety of the sermon today. We're going to bring in some help from the New Testament writers to help us to understand even more so how followers of Jesus live under this kind of authority. But to begin with, let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It says this, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for whatever he does, he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy for him. For he does not know what he is to be, and who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, 
They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in a city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well for the wicked, neither will it be prolonging his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on the earth, neither day nor night do one's eyes see or sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, you know full well, as we've already seen, because Jesus subjected himself to every temptation and every authority that we are subject to now, you know well the feeling of living under unjust authority, as strange as that may be. God, you know the burden that we can feel. You know the vexation and the difficulty that it can cause as we try to both be people of the kingdom of God, but also are subject to the kingdoms of this world. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to find the balance and the understanding to be able to live in a way that makes a radical impact through submission. Teach us to reflect our Christ in the way that we live and interact with even the most unjust authorities in the world. And God, we pray through the life, the ministry, the work, and the actions of your church that we would see even the most unreachable and seemingly hopeless people in this world come to a faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. So I guess we have to begin with thinking about and talking about the problem of kings in general. And I remember when I was a kid, I heard the story of the emperor's new clothes. And I thought that it was just absolute absurdity. I think I encountered that old story for the first time in elementary school. And you may know it, but just in case you don't, 
It's this old story, this old fable that talks about an emperor who was incredibly vain and wanted to adorn himself with just the finest clothes and wanted to constantly be one step ahead of all the other people so that they would know, oh, this emperor, oh, he's got it going on. And you have to imagine that's just exhausting for the emperor's tailor, right? Because there's always some extra demand and it can't be clothes that just look like anyone else's. It can't be clothes that could be matched by any other emperors around. And so the emperor was constantly putting this on his tailor, make me something better, make me something better. And you've probably gotten to this point before if you've just worked for somebody that's unreasonable where you just get done. And that tailor was just done. And so one day he had an idea and he brought to the emperor an empty hanger. No clothes, nothing on it at all. But he told the emperor, because the emperor was so vain and so into himself, he says, no, no, listen, you can't see it, but that's okay. Because I've woven this magical garment out of a beautiful, invisible fiber that no one could ever see or understand. And it's this amazing, mystical thing that no emperors could ever take hold of. But only you, my good emperor, have this kind of clothing. And so because the emperor was so into his own vanity, he believed the entire story. And so he takes off all of his clothes and he puts on these new clothes, which are not clothes. And so he actually has no clothes on, but he thinks he has clothes on. This tailor took a lot of risks here, but he was just done. And so the emperor decides that he's going to go outside and he's going to parade for all of his people his new clothes. And so here you have this powerful, rich, overwhelming man walking down the streets in his new clothes that are not clothes. And so he's actually just naked. And everyone around is like, wow, look at the emperor. He's very naked. And the tailor says, no, 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 my friends. This is a magical garment. And they said, oh, yep, (laughs) sure is. Wow. And so you see them start to hurl praises on this emperor and all the the people around him saying, wow, it's just amazing how beautiful these garments are or or would be if I could see them, but I can't because I'm not as wise and majestic as you. And they start puffing up the ego of this emperor, even though everyone around him knows that he's naked. (laughs) And I heard that story and I thought, that is the dumbest story I've ever heard in my life. There would be somebody that's like, no, man, you are not wearing clothes. And then I became an adult. And I saw what happens when people get into political power and people talk to people that have great power or authority. When you talk to your boss who might be a little overbearing and crazy or you meet someone that has a particular amount of power or sway in the community, you find yourself saying things that you wouldn't say to anybody else. And you start to realize, like, oh, maybe that story's not so crazy. Because even if you don't have any belief or mindset or mentality that anyone in any sort of power is perfect or above reproach, the reality is they kind of are in a certain kind of way and to a certain extent. Because when someone reaches a point of great political power or persuasion or great wealth or influence, all of a sudden these barriers start to get built up between those people and what we would consider just normal everyday people. And all of a sudden there's a new way that we have to interact with some of these people and there's a new way that we have to abide by the things that they say. Even if you think it's dumb. Even if you think it's ridiculous. We find ourselves falling in line and following after these authorities because the thing about authority, like the writer of Ecclesiastes says here, it's authoritative. And it has within it an inherent sense of power and a certain degree of being beyond reproach. 
He says, I say, keep the king's commandments because of God's oath to him. We're going to talk about that side in a minute. He says, be not hasty and go not from his presence. Take not your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. And that's that symptom that comes with power. At a certain point, these people come beyond reproach. He says, whoever keeps a commandment will know no evil thing, and a wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy within him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain spirit or death. And he continues moving on from there. But this idea of keeping the king's command, because the writer of Ecclesiastes here says the word of the king is supreme. He doesn't even say it's a necessarily good word, but he says the word is supreme because it has power, because it comes from the king, because because of his oath from God. And again, we're going to get to that side of things in a minute because that makes all of this even more problematic when we really stop and think about it. But just the understanding of power itself brings this great difficulty. And then we have to add on top of this that not only is there this supremacy with kings and authorities and governors, but those people are flawed. Even the most well-intended, well-intentioned people, people who may have never had the title of Antichrist thrown about with their name, the people who seem to want to do the best for their people, for their kingdom, for their land, for these places, even the best authority in the world is flawed and in its, has, its essence deeply flawed. But then we also know that sometimes this kind of authority is just full on evil and wicked and oppressive and harsh. And we see this kind of pattern here in the later half of this verse where it says there's a vanity that takes the place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's this perplexing thing that happens, especially when you look at someone in a position of authority who you can clearly see that person does not deserve to be there. They shouldn't have this power. They're abusing this power. They're taking advantage of this power, and they're using this power to abuse and oppress other people. And that feels like such vanity. It's such an empty and meaningless and purposeless thing. And we start to look at that saying, why is that not me? Or why is that not someone better than me? Why is there not someone in that position? And then we have to get to the next logical question. But before we get there, I think this is why we use this idea of Antichrist first. Because the big question is, why would God allow this? Why would God allow this man or this woman to be in power? Why would God allow this institution to have this kind of authority in my life? And that's why we start to deflect to this kind of straw man argument also of, oh man, it must be the Antichrist. Because then we can at least assign some sort of deeper meaning to it, some sort of eschatological idea that, okay, if this is the Antichrist, then surely that means that it's ushering in, you know, this return of Jesus and there must be some bigger plan and purpose in place. And so we give it this deeper meaning because it's hard to look at unjust, wicked, or even flawed authority and say they are in that place of power and God has allowed it and I don't know why. But right here, he says, I say, keep the commandments of the king because of God's oath to him. Not necessarily because he deserves it. Not necessarily because there's any merit to that other than God has allowed that position of power and authority. 
And we have to come to terms with that. And Paul, in the book of Romans, writes about this very thing. And again, remember the context in which Paul is living. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Rome. And Rome is a place, but now it's also an entire entity and an idea and a philosophy and a kingdom. And it is one that is not kind, particularly to Christians. This is the kingdom, the the letter that Paul is writing here is a part of the kingdom that crucified Jesus. That would go on to persecute the church time and time again. Paul is living under the emperor Nero, who again, it's probably likely that that's what John was writing about in Revelation. The emperor Nero, who used Christians to light his garden at night. The emperor Nero, who sought to see this group of people exterminated. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Remember, honor the king because of his oath from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And again, Paul is writing that in the midst of a government and an emperor that is unjust and wicked and calling the church and Christians to honor that institution because it's from God. And so the frustration for the 99.9% of us that will never be in a position of that kind of authority is now learning how to live under the authority to those who clearly have no more right to it than we do. But to follow those institutions and authorities as institutions and authorities established by God. And how do we do this? I think if we go back a little bit, Paul gives us a pretty good idea. He says, why would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. I think the Christian response to unjust and wicked authority is to do what is good and to do as much good as possible. And this is something that Paul not only taught, but something that Paul modeled. Because if we think about Paul's later life, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, living in Rome, not in a house, not in an apartment, not out preaching the gospel, but as Paul finds himself in Rome in prison, waiting to be put to death, we see in the book of Acts that Paul gets multiple opportunities to go before the Roman governing body and to plead his case. 
And then we know that ultimately as a prisoner who was going to be put to death, that Paul probably was on his way to have an audience with the emperor Nero before he dies. Now, there are a lot of things Paul could have done in this instance. Paul could have gone before the Roman governing bodies and he could have spit on the floor and said, I have nothing to do with you and and identified himself as a separatist and said, kill me if you want. I don't care about you and move on with his life and then go to his death. Paul could have gone before the governing authorities and started to plead his case, saying, listen, I was just preaching the gospel of Jesus and I wasn't hurting anybody. I wasn't doing anything. I'm a Roman citizen in and of myself. I am a Jewish citizen who has lived my life following the religious rules of my people and I've not broken any real laws or committed any sins or committed any crimes. Please let me go. But what Paul did was stand before the Roman governing officials, and ultimately standing before the emperor himself. And we can be confident, based on the testimony that we see at the end of Acts, that every time Paul got an audience with those in authority, he pointed them to the one who has real power. He stood before the Roman officials and he said, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who has the power to save. And he pleaded not for his own life, but for the salvation of his captors. And this is a key marker of the early Christian church. A lot of times it can be easy to look at the early church and romanticize it a little bit into this countercultural revolutionary moment because we see them having to meet in secret places and create secret symbols so they can hide out. And there's something a little bit kind of criminal feeling about the whole enterprise of the early church. And so we can look and say, what a revolutionary organization. Why don't we have the same kind of thing today? But when we really look at the way the early church lived, we see that it's not a religion of revolution based on defiance, but it's a religion of revolution. That's too many R's for this morning. I'm so very sleepy. It is a religion of revolution by radical submission. And they were doing this because they were trying to follow their Savior in every aspect of their lives. Remember, it was in Antioch that these people were called Christians in almost a mocking way, saying, why are these people trying so hard to be like little Jesuses? Why are they so trying so hard to walk in every step that Jesus walked? But they were. That's what they believed it meant to be a follower of Christ. I am going to image Jesus in everything I do. And they knew the story of the time when Jesus stood before the Roman governor Pilate, when he had committed no crimes, when he had done nothing wrong, When even the governor looked at Jesus and says, you haven't done anything. Why are you here before me? And Jesus could have said, yeah, I know, man. Just let me go. But he didn't. And in this unbelievable story in the Gospels, we see the God of the universe who spoke creation into being. Remember, we just went through John chapter 1. We found out Jesus is God. The God who has established every authority, every throne, and every office. Standing face to face with a man that he knit together in Pilate's mother's womb. A man that he knows one day will have to bow his knee before Jesus and confess that he's Lord whether he likes it or not. And he looks in the face of that man and the God of the universe submitted to that authority so that the gospel 
could go forth. Peter talks about that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, Peter, like Paul, says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter is writing to a church in persecution. Peter is writing to a church that is about to experience a widespread, horrific torture and killing. Peter himself is not far here from being crucified upside down for the sake of the gospel. And he says, honor the emperor. (laughs) Do good. And in the middle of that, he says, live as people who are free. And what an interesting concept here that as people who are living under the submission of human institutions that really we shouldn't feel very beholden to, but by doing that, we're honoring God and living out the freedom that Christ has given us. And in Peter's view, we accomplish more for the kingdom of God and for the gospel by living upright and good lives under human authority than we would as people who are constantly causing trouble for trouble's sake. He continues, saying, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Since we've already talked about some stories I learned as a child with moral meanings, there's a couple others. The story of Chicken Little, the sky is falling, right? The story of the boy who cried wolf, where you see this boy who day after day after day is constantly going back to his village saying, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And every time they would go out, there was no wolf. And then one day there was a wolf. (laughs) And no one believed the boy because he had time and time again said, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And it was always a ruse. It was always a joke. And now the one time that it wasn't when the wolf is confronting this boy, he's screaming and crying out for help and no one comes and no one cares because they've stopped believing him. That message has lost its meaning. And I think as we look at this passage right here, Peter is speaking directly into the cultural context in which we live as the church. We live in a time period where, especially in American Christianity, Christians are constantly crying persecution. Anytime we feel uncomfortable, anytime we feel that our morals or values are checked in any way, shape, form, or fashion, we come out and we scream about how it's persecuted and we start to have pity on ourselves and start to try to do things that cause us to suffer unjustly. And the problem with that is when we start to assign the title of persecution and oppression in places that doesn't really fit, it kind of starts to lose its meaning. And on one hand, we do a great disservice to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who suffer 
unbearable and incomprehensible persecution on a daily basis for the cause of Christ, who have no voice, who have no options, and who aren't seeking to get out of it, but walk headfirst into that persecution knowing that they have the opportunity to be witnesses of Christ with their last breath. But then on the other side, it is a very real possibility that at some point in time in each and every one of our lives, there are going to be times when we're required to maybe even stand against the authority. Because what we see here with Peter, with Paul, and even in Ecclesiastes, and even in the person of Christ, that this isn't just a call to submit no matter what. Because there's a reason Paul is in prison. There's a reason Peter is martyred for his faith. There's a reason that Jesus was nailed to a cross because they were standing against the human institution that was so radically against the kingdom of God. And so there will be times when we have to take a stand for the kingdom of God. And we may have to be against the laws that are pushed on us, especially when it comes to not being able to worship God, not being able to share our faith. We do that no matter what. That's where our freedom comes in. But when those times do come, and if we do find ourselves having to stand and to suffer because of the actions that we're taking for the kingdom of God, we need to make sure that when that time comes, if we are at any point called to bear persecution, that we're going to make it count. That we're going to be able to suffer and endure, even if it's unjustly, so that we can find ourselves a gracious thing in the sight of God. So that like... Stephen, like Paul, like Peter, like so many in the early church who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, like our brothers and sisters around the world, that those deaths, those persecutions, those hardships matter because they're able to take those things and to show the unjust nature of the world and radically contradict that with the beautiful grace and mercy of God. Peter continues to say, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We're such reactionary people, and we get so caught up in the way that everyone around us acts and reacts. I think this is one of the most dangerous things that's happened over the course of history, especially in our country, and our culture, but it's not just reserved to us. But this enmeshing and uniting of both political ideology and religious affiliations has caused a really weird thing to start to happen in our lives. Because you can have someone who claims the name of Jesus, who calls themselves a Christian, but also finds themselves aligning in a lot of areas with maybe a politically conservative group or a politically liberal group. And so you find someone who is going to bear the name of Jesus, but then their actions and their worldview and their mentality starts to look more like people on either side of the aisle or whatever affiliations we have. 
But Peter says, no, you're not here to model the images and the institutions of the world. You're here to model Jesus. And do you want to know who Jesus was? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to judges justly. To him who judges justly. Peter says, that's the example you're to follow. When someone speaks against you, you don't have to speak back. When someone hurts you, you don't have to hurt back. When someone responds to you in anger or violence, you can suffer well because by his wounds you've been healed. Because Christ has set you free. Christ has given you life. There's nothing these institutions can do with you. So follow them so long as they follow God. And the minute they don't, then you follow God. And if it causes you to suffer, so be it. But all on the way, we do as much good as we possibly can for the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we find that God is going to make a radical transformation. Because what happens when Christians live godly lives under wicked authority? If we put all of these things together, not just the text that we've seen, but the stories that we've talked about, when we see what happens here, when these Christians, these men and women who love Jesus, stand up and follow the authority they're called to follow, but also are willing to suffer on account of the kingdom of God, we see something radical happen. The first thing is that we earn the opportunity for evangelism. Because if we're spending all of our time fighting, if we're spending all of our time distracting, distracting ourselves from the things that we really shouldn't be distracted with, we're not going to be focused on the core issue at hand for followers of Jesus. Peter had the opportunity to share his faith with the Roman officials and probably with the emperor himself. Jesus told the Roman governor Pilate all about the kingdom of God and declared him truth. We see the stories of the martyrs throughout the New Testament radically impacting the lives of those around them because their concern is first and foremost with the kingdom of God. They're not distracted by worldly or earthly arguments. They're not distracted by these relatively small things, but they are focused always on making the name of Jesus go forth. And when our lives match the life of Christ, that's going to open up the doors and the opportunities to be able to, on a regular basis, share the name of Jesus and be above reproach as we do it. We also silence the foolishness of the wicked. Jesus tells us that as Christians, we're called to be a city set on a hill. That our lives are meant to look different. That we are meant to be holy or set apart. That we're meant to live out an image, a standard that's different than the rest of the world. But again, too often, Christians just look like another version of everything else around them. And we just attach that other adjective on the beginning of our name. We're a Christian so-and-so, but we act more like the so-and-so than we do like the Christian. But when followers of Jesus stand up and we live our lives to do good and be good, to live lives of righteousness and holiness, to stand against oppression when necessary, but also to be good citizens when we're called upon to do that exactly, we start to shine a light on all the dark and broken places in the world around us, and we start to reveal those things to be quite foolish. Like we've already talked about, when Christians do good and live lives of submission, we make true persecution meaningful. Because that means that when we suffer, 
And we will in some way, shape, form, or fashion, whether it's just discomfort, whether it's ostracization, whether it is actual persecution and violence and difficulty. When we suffer, it'll have meaning because it's going to be for no other purpose than Jesus. If we suffer because we're unethical, if we suffer because we're liars, if we suffer because we're unfaithful, if we suffer because we break laws, then there's no meaning to that. But if we suffer for the cause of Christ, it's going to directly point those around us to an understanding of who Jesus is and our persecution will matter. And then most importantly, when Christians live godly lives under unjust authorities, we reflect the nature of Christ and that's what we're called to do. We are called to be little Jesuses walking around in the world, followers of Christ, as we already saw, walking in his footsteps, following in the footsteps that Jesus has laid out for us. And one of those patterns of living and patterns of walking is to walk in godly lives under unjust and wicked authority. And the most important thing that we can do as followers of Jesus is to follow Jesus. However, this is really hard to do. <laughs> And I'm not going to lie to you, this is a really hard thing for me to preach and teach because it is very counteractive to everything that lives inside of me. I spent most of my life in adolescence just trying to rebel against whatever authority I possibly could. Whether it was my parents who were good and wonderful, whether it was the teachers at school, some of which were good and wonderful, some of which were a bit unjust, if I do say so myself. But there's something in me that just desires rebellion and revolution and just being so counter to everything else that's called around me. And then especially now, I can justify it and make it a spiritual thing. And so even as I'm teaching and preaching through this, it's something that's just really wrestling around inside of me. And I probably can tell by the way that I can't speak this morning. But the good news is, that even if this is hard for you, and maybe it's not, maybe you're somebody who just following the rules just seems like a path of least resistance, and you're right, it's so much easier to do if you would, like, I wish I could have just taught myself that a long, long time ago, probably to save myself a lot of headaches. But if this is something that's hard for you, or if as we're reading through these passages of Scripture, you're thinking, no, I'm probably going to go home and cut those out of my Bible. Because I don't want to be a part of that system. I don't want to follow these rules. I don't want to follow these leaders or these governments or these authorities. I don't want anything to do with that. The good news is this is, this is temporary. Because in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 and 13, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that that Jesus who emptied himself, who became nothing, who took the form of a servant, who subjected himself to earthly authorities that he put into power, that he put into place, that after his death and his resurrection, that God has given him a name that is above every name, and that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the message of John's book of Revelation. Not that we need to fear human institutions, but that human institutions need to find some fear in God. Because Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And one day, He's going to make the rulers of this world His footstool. And that authority that was given to them was just on borrowed time and he's going to take it back and reclaim it and we'll find our freedom in full because the Bible promises us that one day, one day, our subjection will end. Because at the end of the day, it's better to fear God and keep his commandments, even this one, than it is to be like the wicked ruler who wars and oppresses and tries to get for himself all that he can for his own good, but will one day have to lay it all back down and have nothing left to show for it. But for the Christian, one day your subjection to any other authority will end and you will be fully free in the presence of your true king. And hopefully, if we live our life the way that Christ has called us to live, not only will we experience that full freedom that comes in being in the presence of Christ with no other authority to submit to, but hopefully we'll be able to look around. And as we stand in the presence of God, we will see the faces of other men and women and children who are there in the presence of God because God used the life we live, the words we spoke, and even the submission that we practiced to pull them into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I went back and forth on if this week's sermon or next week's sermon is more uncomfortable for me. I'll let you know after next week. But this is a very difficult thing to do. But it's one that not not one time, not two times, but multiple times in Scripture is commanded of God's people. And so let's learn to be the kind of people who submit ourselves to the authorities that have been placed by God. Do our best to honor him until the day when that submission ends.